Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Almost a thousand people have won Nobel Prizes, but only 300 have won Ig Nobel Prizes. That's the award honoring achievements that first make people laugh and then make them think. Today you'll meet the man who started it all. It's just a bad pun for the word ignoble. And you'll meet three recipients, including one who discovered the first known case of homosexual necrophilia in mallard ducks. Well, this was not what my teachers taught me about avian reproduction. You'll meet a man who found a correlation between the body weight of politicians and levels of corruption in the countries they serve. If a country is perceived relatively more corrupt, they have uh, fatter politicians but slimmer voters. And spend some time with a researcher who figured out why wombat poop is cube-shaped. There's a rumor saying wombat poop first and made a shape by their hands. <laughs> I'm Kyone Wolf. That's coming up next on Audacious, right after the news. From Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford, this is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. Imagine this, you are a researcher. You've published a few papers, but really almost no one reads them. One of those papers is about, say, how wombats make cubed poop. Or how nearly all mammals empty their bladders in about 21 seconds, plus or minus 13 seconds. Or maybe you discovered a correlation between the body weight of politicians and how corrupt their cabinet is. Or maybe you published a paper on homosexual necrophilia between mallard ducks. So one day, the phone rings, and you hear this. Hi, this is Mark Abrams. Are you familiar with the Ig Nobel Prize? Now, a few people may react with, Ig Nobel Prize? What? But most of the 300 or so people who've gotten that phone call have been over the moon. So here's the deal with the prize. It's given to those whose achievements make people laugh and then think. And today, you're going to meet three of those proud winners. But first, the founder of the Ig Nobel Prize is Mark Abrams. And I asked him, Ig? What, what is Ig? It has no meaning whatsoever. It's just a bad pun for the word ignoble which um, I wish we had not chosen because it gives people sometimes the idea that this is an insult and it's not. <laughs> For one thing, if we choose you to win a prize, you know, you as an individual or you as a team, many of the winners are large teams. In almost all cases, we get in touch with you quietly and we offer it to you and give you the chance to say no if you want to. And if you say no, fine, that's it. And we never tell anybody, we give it to somebody else. But happily, almost everybody we offer it to says yes. Now, how do you find the people who ultimately win Ig Nobel Prizes? We are always looking. We use the, it's about a hundred of us roughly who put the the ceremony together um, and the editors of my magazine, the Annals of Improbable Research and a bunch of other people. But what we find looking on our own, and it's fun looking, it is just a tiny, tiny fraction of what we learn about every year. Most of what we learn about and most of the winners that we've learned about are because somebody we don't know send or we've never met sends us email or occasionally mail or whatever about this stuff. Uh, one year, a while ago, I was curious about how much of this stuff comes in in the course of a year. So I, I did a rough count during that year. And that year, which was pretty typical, we got something like 9,000 new nominations. About 10 or 20% every year are people who nominate themselves, although they seldom win, but they do occasionally. So I've got to ask, what are some over all these years that have really stuck out to you? One of them, always near the top of my list, is the Ig Nobel Biology Prize we gave in the year 2003. It went to a Dutch ornithologist, somebody whose profession is to study birds. He had run across something really unusual, and he um, took photos and notes and published 
a report in a scientific journal. That report is the first scientifically reported case of homosexual necrophilia in the mallard duck. You know, it took a while for me to laugh. In that case, I thought and then laughed, which is, you know, the inverse of what you were going for. But you got them all from me. That, um, yes, that's powerful. That's really something else there, Mark. And that's just the beginning of it. When you no. read the report, <laughs> I don't think there is a single human being whose expectations whatever they are, would be met by this report. They're going to be exceeded in a direction you cannot possibly anticipate. <laughs> I feel like there's a certain kind of, I don't know, I'm thinking about how life is really hard and strange right now and how the heart of the Ig Nobel Prize is wonder and awe and humor I want to say, like, I, I wish there were more things like this. Like, So do I. Is there anything that you look to that's like this? In bits and pieces, yeah. More than bits and pieces combined, not very much. Um, and one thing that's really strange about this country compared to most others is the way science is treated. Uh, Science in this country for a long, long time has been treated almost everywhere as something that has to be dealt with very earnestly in a way that you don't see nearly so much in other countries. It's always treated very earnestly. There's always the feeling that science must be described and done in a way that's very important and that everyone will appreciate how important and historic it is. And I think that situation, attitude, whatever, I think that's part of why so many kids are not very keen on science and so many people grow up to be a little scared of it. And so many of the teachers in the lower grades, you know, the younger grades are, who teach science are really pretty frightened of it because they never really, they were dragged into it at some point after they were scared. But that's become sort of an obsession with me. I don't talk about it quite that much, but I think about it a lot. It's become more and more interesting as I came to realize, as I got to know a lot of scientists around the world, and some of whom are, have become very famous for what they invented or discovered or whatever. And I think it's almost always true that if you look at something you know as a great historic piece of science, anything you were taught in school, great discovery, whatever. If you talk to the people who did it, or if you look into the history long ago, it never started that way. In its very first stages, whatever it was, somebody had an idea or somebody had a problem they were trying to figure out or overcome. And they had something they wanted to try, an experiment, whatever. The reaction to what they described in their, their first attempts almost always was just big deal. I don't care. It doesn't affect me or that's stupid, or somebody laughed at them. And that's pretty much it. But they kept at it. And some of those things turned out to be, yeah, pretty stupid ideas, or they went nowhere, or they was stupid and it went nowhere. Or nothing happened, and then 50 years later, somebody else happened to think of the same thing and tried it. And that led to something great, and now there's a whole industry, and now we have telephones and internet and whatever. But that gets lost. The moment something becomes famous and there's value, there's money attached to it. Now, in America especially, the way it gets described is this was a great discovery. And the moment it was discovered, the world knew it. And that's never what happened. <laughs> it's never what happened. You make me wonder what country has received collectively the most Ig Nobel Prizes. Ah, well... For most, um, probably the United States, simply because so many scientists and inventors who are in other countries have spent some time and have some affiliation with the U.S. as well. You know, the U.S. is quite special that way. But there are two countries looking back um, that stand out as being 
extremely overproductive of Ig Nobel Prize winners. And I say this with great admiration. And those two countries are Japan and the UK. Most places in the world, certainly our country, if you're really eccentric, if you have really eccentric ideas and you do things that are really different, people give you a hard time. They might try to beat you up. They might kill you. Certainly in a lot of countries, a lot of countries, they'll put you in jail. They'll put your family in jail. But in Japan and in the UK, people may or may not like a, a specific person who is eccentric and got known for it. But damn it, they're proud that that person is one of us. <laughs> we produced that person. You know, you know, I'm sure you've heard the expression British eccentrics. That's because people in Britain are proud of their eccentrics. And Japan is exactly the same way that way. Well, Mark Abrams, thank you for all you do and for all you will do. And thank you so much for talking with me. Thanks. Remember the guy Mark talked about who won an Ig Nobel Prize for his paper about homosexual necrophilia and male mallards? Of course you do. How could you forget? Well, you're about to meet him. His name is Case Muliker. He's a Dutch biologist, ornithologist, and the director of the Natural History Museum in Rotterdam. He won his Ig Nobel Prize for biology in 2003. Let me uh, let me set this stage. It's June 5th, 1995, and Case is at work at the museum, which has just a ton of windows. So birds bang into these windows and die all the time. But on this day, as he hears the usual thud, he turns to see yet another dead bird on the ground, and he notices something different. He sees a male mallard dead on the ground with a live male mallard next to him. And and then... I noticed the live duck mounted the dead duck and started to copulate. Well, this was not what my teachers taught me about avian reproduction. Because one was dead, one was alive. There was sex, so that's a haze, it's necrophilia. And when I looked carefully, I saw that both ducks were of the male sex. So homosexual necrophilia. And I, you have to believe me, this is totally new to me. You know, what's new to me too, go on. Excellent. I'm, I'm a trained biologist, so I'm, I'm used to seeing things in nature and record it and make notes and take pictures. So I went up again took my camera and uh, I took my notebook and a pencil and I took a chair and I started to observe this behavior. And I had plenty of time because it went on and on. The, uh, the duck was almost continuously busy copulating the other duck. Uh, How long are we talking about here? Uh, all in all, I, uh, I managed to um, um, watch it for 75 minutes. I was getting hungry. I wanted to go home. <laughs> So um, I, I went out to collect the dead duck, of course. I and mean, this is of course, yeah. my job. I went out. I took the duck out. I checked the sex. It was indeed of the male sex. Um, and uh, I put the duck in the freezer. And I went home and had dinner. Well, and that, that was it basically for uh, about six years. Yeah, you have... This experience, you've got the duck, you've got your notes, you've got your pictures. What happened to nudge you over the edge to put this together and publish what you'd seen? Well, I knew I saw something special. Uh, I'd never heard about it. My teachers didn't tell me about it, uh, never read about it. So I was kind of overwhelmed by it. And I, I've been, you know, I've been telling the story to friends, colleagues, um, you know, birthday parties at the coffee machine. <laughs> yeah, oh, definitely. Just a casual talk. Hey, did you know ducks this and that? And, uh, um, but in the, in the end, um, a couple of years later, I, I found a book. I think I have it here. Biological Exuberance, Animal Homosexuality and Natural Diversity. Yeah. It's like an encyclopedia about all kinds of um, reproductive behavior, uh, animal behavior that's not in the biology books, but was hidden in the, well, 
darker corners of biological literature. And he compiled it into an encyclopedia, um, ranging from insects to whales and anything in between. And there was a chapter about homosexual behavior in mallard ducks. So I was like, oh, I'm not alone. And this, this triggered me to write my report, the first case of homosexual necrophilia in the mallard. Uh, but because now I had a framework that this type of behavior was not confined to humans, but also was very common in the animal kingdom. And let's fast forward to 2003. Your phone rings. Yeah. And you find out you were awarded the Ig Nobel Prize for Biology. What was your reaction to that? So I'd never heard about this Ig Nobel Prize. There was internet at that time, so I could quickly... Uh, catch up on the idea and it was of course it's it's a it's a big honor to uh, to be nominated for it and i gladly accept it yeah you went to harvard sanders theater for the award ceremony uh, what was that experience like because those award ceremonies are are singular yes this was i mean it was a very kind of sacred place i mean it's at harvard university to begin with well that's that's a good thing and this theater was also where all the great thinkers of the world speak or come together. And I was there uh, with um, nine other Ig Nobel winners. And there were, there were Nobel laureates, I mean, real Nobel laureates, giving the prizes to us. It's hard to explain what's act actually happening there. It's, it's like a, a mixture of uh, Monty Python and the Muppet Show. <laughs> and everybody taps you on the shoulder and say, okay, good work, go on with this. Um, it was a wonderful experience, and I've, I've, been, I've been part of it ever since that moment. You've said that winning the Ig Nobel Prize changed your life in a lot of ways. What were some of the biggest ways it changed? Well, you know, what it, you know what's the, the thing in science? If you publish something, six or seven people read it, actually then it's, it's history or forgotten. And um, same was happening with my duck paper. I published it in 2001. About three, four people asked for a reprint or said, well, interesting. And I, I was basically, I, I forgot, forgot about it. Then was, of course, this big honor of winning the Ig Nobel Prize for the duck paper. It meant a lot of publicity uh, from all around the world. People were actually interested in things I saw and I wrote. And they were, and, and this is what really changed my life. People were sending me all kinds of information, photos, publications about all kinds of strange things that happen in nature now and then. And you got duck toys, didn't you? Yeah. So I have a huge collection of, you know, the, the usual things related to ducks and a big archive of all kinds of odd observations relating to animal sex and behavior in general. And now it's been almost 20 years since you got that phone call from Mark Abrams and you're talking to me on my public radio show and it keeps coming. You, you're probably going to be talking about this in one way, shape or form for the rest of your days. And so I wonder when you when you look back on your life, how does it feel to know that it may be that this is the thing, the thing that you are always remembered for? Yeah. Oh, yes. It's, it's wonderful. I mean, in the, well, in the first place, I'm remembered. I mean. It's pretty nice. Yeah, pretty nice. I've been writing some books. I've traveled the world with the dead duck. I've seen most of the world, thanks to the duck. Uh, I met some very interesting people um, all around the world. It's a richness. It's, it's, it's a good thing. Yeah. You have declared that on June 5th of every year, uh, it's the anniversary of your discovery, there is Dead Duck Day. Yeah. And it is celebrated all over the world. German newspapers report about Der Tag Der Toten Ente. I'll get my, my German uh, producer to correct me on that later. Ente, in Spanish, right. 
Feliz Dia del Pato Muerto. Yeah. So Dead Duck Day is an important day to you. How did you celebrate the most recent Dead Duck Day, June 5th of this year? Well, the the, the it's it's because of all the, the, the pandemics stuff. It's been kind of low profile the last three years. But I always go out uh, with the duck uh, to the location where the um, where the duck hits the glass. I have a moment of silence, and um, in the days before the the pandemic, uh, well, we made it into a little show there with public speakers, poets, anything related to um, to to ducks and. Um, animal behavior in general, and um, with, with one big purpose is to make uh, the world aware of the problems that glass buildings cause for the birds in the world. It's a, it's a big problem, um, uh, and billions of birds die every year because of these uh, structures that, uh, that kill them. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's horrible, and um, I, I try to make architects, people, city planners aware of this problem. So you have traveled the world with this stuffed duck. You even are gracious enough and trusting enough to pass it around uh, when you're giving speeches, which is very impressive because if, if someone ran off with that duck, I mean, you'd, you'd probably be pretty brokenhearted. Um, well, I, I look at the audiences. <laughs> <laughs> you get a vibe. Yeah. <laughs> some some audiences not. You know, I'm gonna hold on to the duck. You guys stay there. Yeah, but it's 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 tricky. Of course, it's tricky. It's it's um well, maybe one day it will it will be torn apart. Is there? That was the question I was getting to. What is the ultimate place you would like to see this precious duck, symptomatic of so much? What would you like to see happen to this duck? I'm talking like it's 300 years from now. You are long gone. People are celebrating dead case Mulliker Day. Um, where is the duck? Uh, I hope it's still in the Natural History Museum in Rotterdam, where it, where it was killed, where it is preserved, where it's, it's, it's on display. I mean, that's what museum people want, of course. They want their collection to be um, there forever. So 300 years from now, it's, it's, uh, it's about the age that birds already have uh, in museum collections, two or three centuries, um, when they're very old, so that we can double that easily. So I, I just hope it's, it's still there um, and that people wonder, oh, yeah, that was the duck. They stop and they think and then they laugh. Yeah, and I, I hope the... Uh, the the environment is better for birds than it is now. Yeah, hopefully people aren't like, oh, that's what a bird looked like. Yeah, I hope. I, I also hope that the cities are better shaped where humans and the animal life can live together in a better way. That would be good to, to, to see. Do you have any tattoos? No. I've been thinking about it. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've been thinking about it, but, uh, but it's... it's um, it's not not really in in my in my DNA to change something in my body. I think you have some. You see that? Yeah, yeah I can see them. Yeah, one or two. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. If you had to get a tattoo, like to save someone's life, and it was going to just be a little tattoo, what do you think it would be? It, it will be a duck, of course. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No problem. The duck. There, there's no question about it. Yeah. Wait, one duck or two? I think. Well, the uh, we've we've made this. Uh, we designed the logo for that duck day. It has the silhouette of the ducks together. That would make a nice tattoo. I'm not sure where I would put it, but <laughs> yeah. But you inspired me. I mean, this is a question I've never been asked before. Well, my pleasure. Uh, if you do go for it, let me know. Yeah, we can talk again. Okay. Hopefully someone will be there to hold your hand. It does hurt. It does no matter hurt. where you get it. It okay, does. Well. I'm just gonna, it doesn't make sense for it not to. It's, your body is doing the right thing. I understand that this paper not only inspired an Ig Nobel Prize, but also uh, an opera in which you play an instrument. Which instrument is that? I played a duck call. <sighs> you know, that's the... Uh, that's the thing that the hunters use to uh, attract them. Yeah. 
that's the only instrument I've ever played, and uh, that's about it. But we performed it in England in the um, the Natural History Museum in London, which is kind of a sacred place to me. So it was good. Yep. Well, Case Muliker, thank you for your contributions to science. Congratulations on your Ig Nobel Prize. And thank you for speaking with me. Nice talking to you. When we get back, meet the researcher who discovered a correlation between corrupt political cabinets and their body weight. The popular form of corruption was to invite uh, governmental officials to, how should I say it, uh, banquets with ex excessive consumption of food and drinks. Plus, one researcher discovers why wombats make cubed poop. I'm Kion Wolf. This is Audacious. Stay with me. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. A lot of people struggle with sleep apnea and with CPAP machines. Dr. Carl Muller, a head and neck surgeon with Hartford Hospital, describes Inspire, a surgical alternative to the CPAP approach. Only about 60% of patients can tolerate CPAP real well. Inspire is a surgical alternative to CPAP. It's an outpatient surgery. It takes about two hours. And essentially what it does is it picks up when you're taking a breath and sends a two-second electrical pulse to the tongue, which causes the tongue to stick out a little bit and stiffen and prevent the airway from collapsing. Hartford Hospital has performed more than 200 Inspire therapy surgeries. If you've tried and failed with CPAP, you could be a candidate for this minimally invasive procedure. Patients with moderate to severe sleep apnea are candidates. There is a weight criteria, so you have to have a body mass index below 35, and you have to have to have tried and failed CPAP. To learn more, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. Today is a special day because you are meeting people who've received IG Nobel Prizes. No, no, not Nobel Prizes. IG Nobel Prizes. They've been given out every year since 1991 by Mark Abrams and the Annals of Improbable Research magazine for discoveries that make people laugh and then think. Later, you'll meet a two-time Ig Nobel Prize winner for her work on wombat poop and how long it takes most mammals to pee. But right now, what does body fat have to do with corruption? Pablo Blavatsky is a professor of economics at Montpelier Business School. He won an Ig Nobel Prize for Economics in 2021 for his study correlating the perceived corruption of politicians and their body weight. I asked him what made him so curious about this. What, what was going on? There were new elections in Ukraine, and I read on BBC website that um, they voted for somebody who has very little political experience, uh, who is current president, by the way, uh, but um, uh, he received a lot of popular votes, uh, a little bit like Trump, I guess, in the US, uh, because uh, he was playing on a TV um, a role of somebody who was fighting corruption. So uh, I found this story fascinating because I thought, wow, corruption must be a really big problem if, you know, if, uh, people are willing to gamble uh, you know, for governing the country on somebody who has relatively little political experience, let's put it this way. And then I start to dig in into the problem and I'm not doing corruption itself. I'm, I'm uh, doing theoretical economics. It's not normal, my uh, cup of tea. But I discovered that the problem is not corruption itself, but uh, the absence of measures have, have to measure corruption. So uh, that's how, we, in a nutshell, if you want, the project started. And I wanted to develop, you know, some measures that is a little bit more accurate than just uh, walking around and asking people who recently visited some country, what do they think? Was it very corrupt, a little bit corrupt or not corrupt? <laughs> so there are only so many ways corruption is perceived 
and measured. There are surveys like the one you're talking about, but really globally, there are only a few resources that try to study corruption, like the Transparency International Corruption Perceptions Index, the World Bank Worldwide Governance Indicator Control of Corruption, the Index of Public Integrity, and just only a couple more. But corruption is, of course, totally subjective. What, what one person thinks is outrageously corrupt, another person might think is savvy and perhaps just a healthy stress test on established rules and historical precedents. So tell me about what inspired you to land on studying the correlation of perceived corruption and body weight. When I started reading about corruption, one of the things that I read was that a popular form of corruption was to invite uh, governmental officials to, how should I say it, uh, banquets with ex excessive consumption of food and drinks. And apparently it's very popular because um, uh, I mean, there is very, it's very difficult to accuse somebody of wrongdoing. They, uh, uh, there is no envelope of cash changing hands or whatever. Uh, they just come there, they have good time, they eat and drink, and then they leave. And, and that's basically it. So it's very hard to say that, you know, they, they were uh, not acting to the best of public interest. And uh, my thought was, okay, uh, look, if somebody is going uh, very often to these kind of events, uh, they risk gaining weight. And uh, as anybody who was jogging or trying to lose weight in some other way uh, knows, uh, you know, once you get these extra few pounds, it's really difficult to get rid of them. And that was natural, the hypothesis that I wanted to check. I wanted to see, well, if there is correlation between uh, excessive uh, weight and uh, political corruption. Yeah. So what did you ultimately discover when you looked at the body weight of politicians and perceived corruption? Uh, well, I discovered, surprise, surprise, there is a positive uh, relationship. So it appears that countries that are perceived uh, as corrupt or more corrupt, relatively more corrupt, uh, they uh, just happen to have uh, more overweight uh, politicians. And uh, countries that are perceived as relatively less corrupt, uh, they have slimmer politicians. Uh, so uh, this is just a, a correlation. So I cannot really say which way the causality goes. Some people say when, when they see this result that, oh, hold on a second, maybe, maybe this is that if uh, you happen to be overweight politician and somehow you got elected into office, you just take bribes because you know this is once in a lifetime opportunity, you will probably never be reelected. So you just exploit this lucky chance that you got uh, and uh, you try to get you know as much personal gain as, as possible. So it's maybe not because that you know if, uh, you are corrupt and then this shows in your extra weight, but uh, it just happens that you know if uh, you are obese, you are less likely to be voted again uh, for the next term and then once you are already in office, you happen to take bribes. So true, I cannot say which way the causality goes. Um, so you need to decide for yourself, but there is positive correlation. And another thing, um, some people were arguing that, well, maybe it just happens that in countries that are perceived as relatively more corrupt, uh, they have more obese politicians because the general population is just more obese and then they just vote for um, obese politicians because people in general are obese there. Um, that's valid comment too. So I uh, tried to check uh, with the obesity of the general population. <laughs> that was actually funny because there is a negative relationship. So it's uh, basically if a country is perceived uh, uh, relatively more corrupt, uh, they have uh, fatter politicians but <laughs> slimmer voters. <laughs> but in the country that is perceived as less corrupt, it's the other way around. They have slimmer politicians, but more overweight voters. <laughs> okay, I feel like there's so many directions to go with this. One is, uh, you're not saying that if you're a fat human being, then you are more corrupt or corruptible. No, I'm not. <laughs> 
Right. So we're not talking about, I don't know, Trump or Biden or Zelensky or anyone in particular. Now, to get this data, you studied 299 face images of high-ranking officials from 15 post-Soviet countries. Which uh, was, to be honest, a lot of work because then you need to scan uh, uh, like 30, 40 photographs of uh, of these politicians. Uh, I, I used the uh, artificial intelligence algorithm because obviously you cannot just uh, call the politician's office and ask, well, what's your body mass index? <laughs> Normally they don't share this uh, information and then you, you need somehow, you know, to get this estimate. And what I data. I think this was the novelty which really attracted a lot of attention because in economics we rarely use graphical data and, and I actually use graphical data. So I, I scan these photographs and then there is uh, this artificial neural network that is trained uh, first to recognize human face and then uh, uh, to associate human face with uh, body mass index. So you first have a database of many thousands of people uh, who volunteered to give their photograph and their weight and height. So we know for them what is uh, the relationship. But then once this artificial neural network is, is trained, I, I feed to it uh, photographs of politicians for whom I don't know the index, and it tells me the estimate. Uh, uh, of course, maybe uh, some cases there's not correct uh, estimate, but that's the best you can do given that medical records of somebody like you mentioned, Trump, is notoriously difficult to get. <laughs> so this is the second best you can do. And uh, that was uh, labor intensive, scanning those uh, photographs uh, and, and finding those photographs too. I, initially, I was much more ambitious. I wanted to do it for all countries of the world. But uh, it, this, I, very soon I had to scale it down because uh, it's easy to find uh, a photo of prime minister in international press. But once you think of, I don't know, Minister of Agriculture or Minister of Social Policy, uh, then finding their photographs in English-speaking press, it's almost impossible. So you need to go to local media. And uh, if it's like a Southern Asian country and you don't know the language, uh, forget it. It's just impossible. <laughs> so, yeah. Will you tell me about when you found out that you've won an Ig Nobel Prize? How did that feel? Uh, that was a complete surprise. To be honest, uh, I, I work like in a relatively small school in a relatively small European country. So normally uh, nobody is really interested on what I write and what I publish. Uh, and then uh, uh, it was unexpected. I don't know who nominated me. Uh, I uh, I mean, what I, when, when Mark told me about this uh, award, uh, my reaction was like, what are the odds <laughs> that my paper is selected? <laughs> uh, they must receive like I don't know thousands of papers every year, and 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 what are the chances that that uh, you know they select uh, just your particular paper? I, uh, I it feels incredible. I um, uh, I didn't expect it at all. So yeah, it was very unexpected. <laughs> Now, when they called, did you make sure you understood it wasn't the Nobel Prize? <laughs> like, was there a moment for you that you were like, I'm sorry, Ig? What? <laughs> no, uh, in the scientific community, everybody knows Ig Nobel Prize. So there was no uh, misconception <laughs> whatsoever. Uh, it's fun to watch. I, I watch myself every year who receives them. And it's fun. Everybody that, and gives you one of the you know topics to discuss when, uh, at dinner time. Or, you know, it gets a bit boring. And uh, normally, you know, f these topics are funny. So <laughs> you, you bring it up. Now, this is very well known so but there was no for you know misconception whatsoever I, I knew immediately what was going on and actually immediately knew what study that, that must be for because the, the, the rest of the stuff that I'm doing is like boring serious mathematics so it's it was clearly not those projects but but this on corruption do you think that when you die you'll be remembered mainly for this? And if so, how do you feel about that? 
a bit depressed actually. <laughs> <laughs> Not about the dying thing. We all die. That that's that's inevitable. So there is <laughs> no way. But uh, no, depressed in the sense that. Um, you know, I have written maybe 50 papers, and <laughs> on average, my paper gets, uh, I don't know, uh, five, six citations. So uh, uh, maybe, uh, I don't know, uh, let's be generous. Maybe there's a dozen people who read uh, my average paper. So uh, that's about, you know, the level of attention I normally get. And then all of a sudden comes this study. I, I don't know, it was tweeted uh, like five million times or something like that. that makes you really depressed because then you think no matter what I will do in my life for the rest of my life, even if I live like thousand years, it will never ever get this snowball attention. And uh, I would always be remembered as this corruption guy. So uh, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's a bit depressing actually. <laughs> I, well, I hope I will change it. So maybe there would be another super cool study coming up that <laughs> will get uh, a lot of impact but uh, realistically speaking uh, yeah I don't know it makes me feel a bit depressed <laughs> uh, well Pavel Blavatsky I hope you feel better and <laughs> thank you for talking with me yeah sure uh, it was fun <laughs> after the break what does it take to win two Ig Nobel Prizes I study pee then I study poop she sure does I'm Kion Wolf find out more on Audacious right after this break. You are my crooked politician and I know you just don't care that the people who elected you are suffering in despair. When the You're listening to the new investigative reporting podcast in absentia, which means you're interested in getting to the facts and uncovering the truth. If you'd like to help us continue our investigative work, consider making a donation. Visit ctpublic.org slash tap support and contribute today. That's ctpublic.org slash TAP support. Thank you for being a part of the Accountability Project. If you've never donated to this station before, that's okay. Public radio is available to everyone for free. But we do rely on listener support from those who are able to give. So join the community of supporters for Public Media Giving Days. And thanks. Give now at ctpublic.org slash donate. This is Audacious. I'm Kion Wolf. The Ig Nobel Prize is given to researchers who make people laugh and then think. Patricia Yang is an assistant professor of power mechanical engineering at National Tsinghua University in Taiwan. And her love of studying bodily fluids or fluid mechanics is what won her not one, but two Ig Nobel Prizes. In 2019, she took one home for a study titled How Do Wombats Make Cubed Poo? And in 2015, she snagged her first one for a discovery that duration of urination does not change with body size. Turns out that nearly all mammals empty their bladders in about 21 seconds, plus or minus 13 seconds. The more you know. I asked her what's her favorite animal in general and in this study. Elephant. Definitely elephant. Why? They like a big tree. They give me some like a very confident, stable, and peace feeling. <laughs> and also the way they pee. <laughs> like, like they never got shy of the camera. So we filmed the zoo animal and they have a regular time of eating, sleeping, and definitely take pee. So when I say I want to film elephant pee and the keeper just told me, okay, tomorrow in this corner, 7.30 p.m. and 30.30 a.m. in the morning, it definitely gotta go. <laughs> so I just get all the setup ready, uh, maybe 10 minutes before and waiting at that corner and about, about the same time, the right timing and this elephant just swing its back and then coming to the corner and start its thing. <laughs> so let's talk about the numbers. There's a 13 second deviation in your results. Is, is that because some animals spread their pee out while marking territory and others just kind of go for it all in one fell swoop? Yeah, so that we believe that's uh, one of the reasons why we have this wide range of deviation from 10 to 30 seconds, because we didn't exclude any animals. So there are some of them might be kept marking their territory, and some of them just empty their bladder, 
And we, oh, we have one exclusion that really we believe does not belong to the study. It's, uh, we found a dog on YouTube and I think he peed about one minute and 30 seconds or so. Super long pee. That's really out of the, the, the standard deviation. So we found out this dog actually ate a half watermelon before it got to go. So then we think, we think that's definitely not the normal case. And we have perfect reasoning of not including this, this data point. You mentioned that you watched for your research YouTube videos. I had no idea that people post videos of their animals peeing. Oh, you didn't know that. No, no, I didn't know. So many videos are from people at the zoo and they just happen to saw an island or elephant or a, a dog stop peeing and they they got their cell phone start shoot filming the pee and they're super excited about us and also that in a sense that this topic is important to people they want to know the answer it's like a question that i didn't ask until i had the answer you know and now i yeah no i appreciate the question you know what the first time i saw elephant pee and because that's so amazing <laughs> so and i i feel it got me the feeling of watching like a fireworks and i thought it's forever but actually just a few seconds it's 20 seconds or so give or take 13 seconds uh now you not only won this prize the ig nobel prize once but you won it twice so 2015 and in 2019 uh both with a group of co-researchers um will you talk about the paper you won for the second time, how do wombats make cubed poo? I don't know where to start. Just where do you start with that? <laughs> okay. So the beginning of my PAP journey as this urination study, and then I got hooked with all this body fluid, especially the exclusion part. Okay. So I study pee, then I study poop. And poop is slightly complicated than pee. So it has different form. <laughs> so we have pilots and we have cylindrical and we have a cow pie style, pie style. And it's very rare to see square in biology. Most of the time you see round stuff. It's hard for biology to make sharp edge or flat surface. But then the more I dig out, if you Google say uh, wombat poop before my study, you will see a lot of squares. And those look so fake. It's like, like people made it by themselves. And even there's a rumor saying maybe wombat got poop first and made the shape by their hands. You're giving no. wombats a lot of credit. I mean, nothing against wombats. I'm sure yeah, they're very smart. So, so this gets too far from what I think of. And then eventually we found, that, but the more I dig out, there's more curiosity come out. I need to answer this. <laughs> I'm a scientist. So eventually we found a wombat asper in Australia. This question is also in his mind for a very long time because he, his job was uh, dissecting uh, roadkill wombats. And he found out the pilot feces is also piled up in their gut. Uh, sorry, not pilot, but the square feces. That's not because, definitely not because they have a square anus or not because the wombat made a shape by the hands. It's definitely something else. And by that, so we start this collaboration and study the, the property of the intestine. And we'll figure out this intestine is weird. It looks like rounded or a circle, but when it got contract, it would turn out to be a, a sort of square shape, not very sharp at that, but you see the, the corners. Right. They're not sharp. If they were sharp corners, we wouldn't have any wombats. Yeah, of course you get it. <laughs> every step, every conversation of this project is surprising because we never think of a way to make square by soft tissues. No. Again, another question I didn't know I wanted to ask until I had the answer. Yeah, we make square by, say, uh, phase changes. So we have a mold, like how we make ice cubes. Or we, we cut the, the plate or something and made the shape we want. But Wombat doesn't have a mold. Wombat doesn't have a, a knife. He just made it out of this soft poop and made it square. So it's just the way that the intestines form it and the way that it is extracted doesn't ballify it. It remains 
uh, cube. Yeah, it remains the way it was. Yeah. And as far as we know, this is the only animal that whose poop behaves this way or whose intestines behave this way. Yes, as far as we know. As far as we know. Um, what I really deeply want to know is, um, you know, hopefully you have a long life ahead of you and more discoveries headed your way, more Ig Nobel Prizes. But if you were hit by a, a bus today and died, you would be remembered overall as the lady who studies pee and poop. Yeah, I am the pee girl in this big conferences. And later I'm the poop girl and later I become wombat girl. I'm totally fine with it. It's perfect. <laughs> I feel so proud of it. You have this enthusiasm that is so totally contagious and it seems like an important part of the work you do. So as you move forward in your career and you're surrounded by teams of other researchers, what qualities are you looking for in them? The most critical point is imagination. I think another equally important character is curiosity. The questions has been the, into their mind that bother them so much until they take actions. <laughs> So curiosity and follow through. Yes. Patricia Yang, thank you so much for all you've done and congratulations on your two Ig Nobel Prizes. Thank you. I'm happy that you're having me. Really proud of this. All right. Now, if you've never witnessed an Ig Nobel Prize ceremony, well, it's something you'll remember forever. So set your calendars for the next one, which is September 15th of this year. We'll have a link to their landing page at ctpublic.org slash audacious. This episode was oh so lovingly produced by me, Jessica Severin Martinez, and Katie Talarski, with help from our interns Anya Grandalski and Mira Raju at Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford. Subscribe to Audacious and you'll always get to hear the show a day early. You can subscribe to them wherever you get your podcasts. Send me your Ig Nobel nominees on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Wolf, or send an email to audacious at ctpublic.org. Thanks for listening. Smelly, smelly, smelly. Wombat poop. Stinks so bad. Square. Yeah.